I'm grateful to Andrew for giving me the opportunity to uh, preach this sermon. I would like to preach it all the time, but uh, this morning I'm grateful to you for cooperating in this. Today we reach verse 13 in the talks on a Christian lifestyle, all taken from Romans chapter 12. And I believe that this is one of the most important messages that I can give to our church today if our church is to serve our generation. It's interesting the way in which the words are translated in the different versions. In this service where we're used to the authorized version, you will recall that the authorized version translates it, given to hospitality. NIV says, practice hospitality. The Good News Bible says, open your homes to strangers. The Jerusalem Bible, make hospitality your special care. The New Revised Standard Version says, extend hospitality to strangers. And the message, that paraphrase says, be inventive in hospitality. Now, it's an interesting set of variations on the theme in these different ways in which two Greek words are translated. The Greek says pursuing, as a hunter pursues his prey, pursuing the love of strangers. We all know the word today, xenophobia. In fact, this word here is the opposite of xenophobia. It's philoxenia, the love of strangers, not the fear of strangers. The grammatical construction of this chapter implies that like the previous nine items, they're all a subset of verse 9 which says, let love be sincere, and then follows with all the nine parts of that. So we are dealing with something that is a mark of how sincere or genuine our love is when we're dealing with our attitude to the stranger. It's a clear mark of a Christian lifestyle. To put it in today's context, it's one of the consequences of our baptism, which indicates that we are born into the family of God and go beyond the family in which we came into the world. Perhaps you notice that out of the six translations, only two used the word strangers. You see, hospitality can hide the meaning because it covers all whom we entertain. And I would have us note today that we're talking about welcoming strangers or those who are not of our people. There are two parts of this. The first is welcoming strangers. The second is the place of the home in God's purposes. Now, these themes run right through the Bible. It's not just an occasional reference. There is a theology of the stranger which should affect our attitude and conduct towards them. It begins pretty far back with the precedent that we see in Abraham in the book of Genesis. The New Testament writer of the Hebrews says, By faith Abraham lived as a foreigner in the country that God had promised him. He did this in response to a call from God. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your relatives and your father's home, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. 
and he lived as a foreigner. He lived in tents after residing in the civilized city of Ur. So Abraham, the father of all the faithful, was a foreigner and a stranger all his life, and he sets the precedent. He is also the one to whom the revelation of God came at the very time when he welcomed strangers. The text says, as Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the hottest part of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing there. And as soon as he saw them, he ran out to meet them. And bowing down with his face touching the ground, he said, Sirs, please do not pass my home without stopping. I'm here to serve you. Let me bring you some water for you to wash your feet. You can rest here beneath this tree. I will also bring you a bit of food. It will give you strength to continue your journey. You have honored me by coming to my home, so let me serve you. Abraham has been waiting a long time, 25 years, for God to keep his promise of a son and heir. He was hoping against hope. It was taking a long time. Then it all happened. He welcomed three men. They were angels, but he didn't know it. And before they had slept that night, he had the promise that within one year, they would have the son they so badly wanted. In this too, Abraham is a precedent. He's behind the exhortation in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, to remember to welcome strangers into your home. There were some who did this, and he's referring to Abraham, and welcomed angels without knowing it. And there is the distinct impression here that if we neglect this matter, we will lose out in our hearing from God. A critical event in Abram's progress in life depended on his welcome of strangers. They are often the voice of God to us. And it can be that with us. We also need to notice that this welcome of the stranger as a possible messenger from God or the gods is still common in many parts of the world. In Swahili, the word for stranger, Mgeni, is also the word for guest. The two are almost synonymous. In some cultures, stranger is synonymous with enemy, but in many cultures, synonymous with guest. And this is the kind of thinking that lies behind that. So we're on trial when strangers are around. The status of foreigner and stranger is emphasized also about Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, his grandson, and his 12 great-grandchildren. But we pass over all that to get to the next primary lesson. The Israels went down into Egypt as honored guests under the protection of Joseph at the invitation of Pharaoh. But later on, a king arrived who did not know Joseph, and they became oppressed slaves. And for generations, they were traumatized as a people, cowed, beaten, deprived, rejected, despised by their overlords, the Egyptians who had originally invited them to come. God, however, came and through Moses delivered them in the Exodus. And it was a critical moment for their subsequent history. In their laws, immediately after Mount Sinai, 
They were hardly across the Red Sea before they were told, do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner. Remember, you were foreigners in Egypt. Almost in less than a week, not quite as quickly as that, they were told, don't treat the rest of the world the way the Egyptians treated you. And we notice a sense of mutuality in the words. Because they had been foreigners, they knew what foreigners felt like. So there are resources in us to help us to carry out this injunction. All our own experiences of being excluded and not feeling welcome or rejected are a preparation and a motivation to live like this. I often say it takes a stranger to welcome a stranger. And I'd say to any pastor trying to encourage this in his congregation, the people who are liable to respond to welcoming strangers are those who have been strangers in another country. Now, that was all right for that generation. It's permanently there, enshrined in the law, and it's applied in several ways that brings us on to the human rights discussions that we have today. But the Jews soon progressively forgot that and became one of the most exclusive peoples that the world has ever known. Not even eating with strangers by the time we get to the New Testament. And they regarded all the other nations as just so much fuel for the fires of hell. It's understandable. They had a bad time in Egypt. And then when they were in the promised land, they were overrun by foreigners with monotonous regularity throughout their history. They didn't have a good experience of any of them. Then they suffered mass deportation for years on end. And if they were to retain their identity at all, they had to push against their neighbors whom they had not chosen. And there was some justification for this attitude even in the law. They'd been warned about not following the gods of the surrounding peoples. These gods and religions were pretty gross compared to the revelation they had of the Lord Yahweh. They did have reason to be proud, but it corrupted them because they only took the easy negative bit about what the law said on strangers. The trauma of Egypt was never erased, and its lessons were not well learned, and it constituted one of the problems that Messiah had to rectify when he came. So we pass on to the New Testament and Jesus, the stranger. He said it. I was a stranger. He lived it. He came to a borrowed manger. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. They put him in a borrowed tomb. John said of him, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But some did receive him. He was forever in other people's houses. Peter's in-laws, Matthew's tax pad, Simon the Pharisee, another Pharisee, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. And when he spoke about the kingdom, it was like a banquet where guests were invited. And he sends out the 12 and the 70 with the good news and made it dependent on their being welcomed into the houses where peace reigned. Evangelism of this kind means that the person witnessing to his faith 
is either the guest or the host of the other. If we remember that, we would have no more brash evangelism. Because the attitude between guest and host would bring the dignity and respect in which the gospel can truly be shared. And Jesus' chief commemoration was to be the supper, which we will share at in this service. One mark that distinguishes a sheep from a goat in the judgment is that they welcomed one of the least of his brothers who were strangers, yet they took them in. And all that implies, sorry, all that applies to us. But we're not through yet. The church is the home. In the early church, both the apostles and the gospel are dependent on hospitality from favorable people. The home in Joppa, the story of Dorcas, the house of Cornelius, Acts 10. The universal reach of the gospel depended on the question of hospitality given and received by Peter and Cornelius. Shattering to think of that. Then there was the house of Lydia in Acts 16, the house of Crispus in Acts 18, the house of Philip in Acts 21, the house of Publius in Rome in Acts 28, Paul's rented house in Acts 28, and the house of Philemon, as in that letter. So it's not surprising that the early Christians were urged to be hospitable. The progress of the gospel depended on it. Their message was that God loved the world and everyone in it. How could they be credible if there was not a welcome for everyone, no matter what tribe or tongue or nation or social grouping they belonged to? At that time, if they sided either with or against the Jews, they were left without the message of reconciliation and no gospel. The idea of no longer being treated as strangers and foreigners as the Jews treated the Gentiles is at the very heart of the concept of the church. But all this is doctrine, truth, the way we look at things, important, but we need to get practical. Make hospitality your special care, our text says. This is laid here on all Christians and also in Hebrews 13.2. It's to be the special care of elders and widows, and we're to do it without grudging, as Peter says in his letter. So we must do it. Now, this is not primarily what happens in the church building, and it's not always about food. It's about what happens where we live and work. If our church is to be the church, we all need to have friends of other nationalities, other social groups, other denominations, different tastes. And it involves a number of things. First, ongoing friendships. It takes time to get to know someone, to understand, to trust, and be trusted. I remember four of us, two blacks and two whites, were at a very important conference in Durban, South Africa. 
And we, two blacks and two whites from Kenya, were there because this was the first ever really multiracial, multi-tribal gathering of Christians in South Africa. We had all the tribes. We had all the nations. And one of our African brothers from Kenya was being uh, surrounded by white South Africans because they found in the two that had come an attitude that they didn't find in their own blacks. And they were almost oppressive in the way they were flocking round him. And I remember him saying to them, not so fast. Give me time. Give me time. And I think that's the key to hospitality, that we're prepared to give people time. This is about opening our home to strangers. And the stranger may not become a friend. We still have to do it. The stranger may become a friend, and a friend but not a Christian. And may not even go to church with us. That is still something we have to do. I was a stranger. It will involve our homes and theirs eventually. At what point, it's not easy to say. Even that could take time. It's about mutuality. We have something to receive and something to give. In Kenya, where we were first tested on this, the rule in colonial Kenya was that you never went to a white home without being given an invitation and a time uh, to come which meant Africans never came to see us Europeans unless we invited them. On the other hand, the African custom was you never invited anybody. Everybody was welcome all the time. And so both were hanging back for quite different reasons. But the essence of hospitality is that you're in both homes, not just in your own. And that takes time. And we need to learn together. And we all need to learn, not just the Brits. Christians of all cultures need to learn this. The fact that you have a black or a brown or a yellow face doesn't make you a cross-cultural addict. Our services will be a factor in this, but it may take weeks, months, before we will get people here, especially if they're not yet Christians. Now, what are we going to, when are we going to do it? Should we not start now? Don't try and befriend everyone. Pray that God will give you one friend, maybe two. They will take up a lot of your time and energy. Eventually bring them home, visit them. Later bring them to church when there's a, a lunch or another meal. And everyone will not work. In any culture, not everyone becomes a friend. And across cultures, it's still true. Cultures can be incompatible unless both parties want to move. So how do you handle cultures? How do you learn? Because I believe that in UK, many of us are stumbled at this early stage. Well, the best way, of course, is to live in another culture for about three years to break your own cultural straitjacket. But that's not possible for most of us. But watch out for courses or books or novels or seminars. There's quite a library of books on culture. There's even one on how to get on with the British. Ultimately, the best way is to get the person from the other culture to tell you how to relate to them. 
And to do this, however, there's one thing to avoid. Avoid interrogation. We're very good when you're the dominant culture of battering the other person with questions. What about this? What about that? What about the other? And interrogation never leads to friendship. You've got to get into the mode of active listening. And active listening usually means repeating the last thing the person said to give them a chance to say more rather than thinking what you're going to say next in the conversation. It takes time. I was much, much too late in learning about active listening. It's just not my way of doing things, but I've tried to learn. If you find you need to help the conversation along, and you will, you could work on the scheme that I devised for myself. I call it the seven verbs of life. And you can draw out a person or a group by talking in any one of these areas. Usually works. The verbs are, one, to be. Identity comes from family, whether we like it or not. And talking to people of another culture, talking about their family, how it works, how they do things, how many there are, and so on, will keep the conversation moving for a long time. The second verb is a verb to do. This covers work, wages, property, the means of production, exchange, and all of that is a great part of life, as you can recognize immediately. The third verb is to know. This covers education, truth, communication, who says what to the other person, who doesn't say what to the other person, and uh, we can talk about how people communicate. To relate. Relationships cover law and order, authority, politics, relationships, hierarchy, structure, institution, forms of address, all important parts of a culture. And you can ease into a conversation about relationships. Then the next verb is to play. This covers the arts, entertainment, dance, drama, music, sport, humor. Any way in which we relax is quite important. And then there's to suffer, the seventh verb, sickness, health, even death. Suffering and death play a large part in in life, and we're usually ready to talk a little about it. Indeed, hypochondria is a word in our vocabulary that expresses how willing we are to talk about our ills. Use it. And finally, to worship. There's more to life than the human and the material, and one's view of this is important. And finally, just a word or two about the minefields. What to avoid? The first minefield is time. It cannot be done in a hurry. I've spoken about that. Gender relationships. Best to keep men to men and women to women in this exercise. Seniority or rank is important, especially moving into different cultures. 
Honour and respect are primary. And initiatives, who takes them? Don't always be taking the initiative. Leave room for the other person to initiate and to start some. So what is the goal in all of this? Really, it's to turn people who start as strangers into friends. And it's the best way to make friends that I know. But it's not about giving hospitality to those that you know well already. In the church, welcoming a stranger only applies to the first time you have people home. After that, they go into the friends category, and we need to keep our eye open for the stranger. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be like Jesus, open, welcoming, ready to put ourselves out for those that we don't yet know. And being like him, may we carry his fragrance with him, with us, and bring people to know him for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.